It creates loneliness, but it's prompted by loneliness. And it's also an antidote to loneliness in some ways. Like, much of my writing comes out of experiences that I feel so lonesome in, you know? Things like secrets, pains that I have shame about, things that I don't know if I can name or that I think I will be struck down if I name, truths about my experience that I refuse to look at for a long time. I mean, this book is very much also about building a mythology in a relationship and then how I have to smash it in the writing to get to the truth of it. And that is so terrifying. Um, and then I have to be totally alone as I write it. Like writing is such a lonely thing. It, 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 it can be the most lonesome space. And for that same reason, the solitude of it, it also can be the safest space because I don't have to let anyone else in until, I'm, until I invite them. Welcome to The Lonely Hour. This is your host, Julia. That was Melissa Phoebos, an author as well as an assistant professor of creative writing at Monmouth University and a faculty member of the Institute of American Indian Arts. She's also a former heroin addict and a dominatrix who worked for four years in a midtown New York dungeon. Her latest book, Abandon Me, details the way in which her birth father's leaving the family marked her with compulsion and an instinct for self-erasure. Melissa searches for identity in drugs, in writing, and in an obsessive love affair. Ultimately, she loses herself in that other person. To me, the loss of identity or the realization that you've never had one, never really known yourself and operated in the world with that information, that lacking is a kind of loneliness. If you've listened to this whole season, you might remember what I said on the first episode about my own shifting identity. Here's that clip again. I've turned a kind of corner where I've left an old identity, the identity of like a very social girl who talks a lot and drinks a lot and flirts a lot with everyone. And um, to someone who spends much of her time alone, to someone who's become sober, at least for a little while, and who feels, frankly, a little disconnected and numb. And I don't know why exactly I'm in the middle of it right now, but it's clear that I've gone from being a social butterfly to someone who's more withdrawn. Over 10 episodes of The Lonely Hour Later, I'm honestly not sure I'm much further along. I'll come back to me at the end of this episode. For now, I want to hear the rest of Melissa's story. Katie Shepard from What's Happening Here, another Listening Booth show, interviewed Melissa for this episode of The Lonely Hour, our last in season two. Here are Melissa and Katie. Let's listen. A relationship that I began in 2012 with a married woman uh, who lived on the other side of the country And pretty quickly, that relationship was marked by intensity of all kinds. It was erotically intense. It was emotionally intense. It was, it, 
included a lot of intense suffering. Um, it was it was pretty tormented from the very beginning. And so it details the sort of push and pull of that relationship and the way that I watched myself sort of fall apart and kind of reorganize my life around that relationship. And, and this is where I think there's a parallel between that and addiction, the way that when I was addicted to heroin, you know, Annie Dillard has this line in one of her essays where she's describing the nature of a weasel, and she describes it as yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of a single necessity. And she's talking about survival, right? Um, but that's sort of what addiction is like, right? Like every decision you make is ruled by whether you have heroin, where you're going to get it next, how you're going to get money to get it. Everything is about that because you're dependent on it, or at least there's an illusion of your being dependent on it. And that is how I related to this lover, sort of um, my security in that relationship, her feelings towards me. So like my well-being, my feelings from moment to moment after a pretty short time were almost entirely dictated by her mood you know, or how I was perceiving our relationship at the time. And those things fluctuated a lot, <laughs> you know. You say these incredible things that will maybe stick with me like forever. Like all my life I have lamented the distance um, between what I know and what I do. Mm. Um, or self-knowledge didn't save you. It only made you hurt more when you watched yourself yeah or some yep. version of that yeah um so i guess, so i mean i even recognize that in my own life of this like what the fuck am i doing i know and like why, why is this playing out in this way yeah i think everybody does you know we our behavior is not governed wholly by our knowledge like that's just the thing right it seems as though it should right? That that's how logic works, right? But that isn't because it's not only logic that we're accessing to make our decisions, you know? It's like these deep sort of subterranean wishes for redemption or compulsions or, you know, like the earliest example of this that I can think of is being an adolescent and having an eating disorder and just generally, maybe even before I had an eating disorder and I just hated my body like it was so traumatic it was it was traumatic to develop as a woman in this country you know the way that the world responds to you differently um the way that men treat you it is shocking as and I was like 11 when it happened so I was like still a kid and you know, and I remember thinking, like, my mother is a feminist. Like, I know what patriarchy is. I know about the evils of capitalism and, you know, the marketing of the beauty industry. Like, I knew about these things. I read Ms. Magazine when I was, like, 10, you know? So, and I was like, but I still hate myself. I still want to be skinny. I still think that, you know, being pretty is, like, the most important thing, even though I know that it's not, mm. you know? And, like, that was so painful, you know, and that has never stopped. And I think particularly as an addict, it has marked a lot of my own experience of myself because the nature of addiction is that you perform these compulsive actions that are very clearly 
not a good idea. <laughs> you know, very clearly causing harm to you and everyone you love. And you're also writing again about being a dominatrix. Mm-hmm. Which also, when I've heard you previously, you said that you didn't think that you would do, yeah. that it was sort of done. Yeah, I mean, I I understood, at least in the writing of it, that sort of germane to both of these experiences was my own interest in power dynamics and in control and in this sort of interplay between wanting to be in control and push boundaries and also yield to something. You know, I think there's this sort of cultural narrative that people who push boundaries, like drug addicts, dominatrixes, like people who sort of defy social prescription and... Um, seek out intense life experiences, which is one way of perceiving me, um, are sort of um, rebellious and wild and independent and um, out of control or, like, don't have boundaries. And, And while those things may be true in a certain sense, I actually think that that behavior in my experience is closely related to my desire to find boundaries and to find my own limits or maybe have them imposed from external sources you know I want to find where the wall is so that I can stop you know Um, I want to find something greater than me so that I don't have to be struggling to be in control all of the time you know and and so I think I understood that my what brought me to the dungeon um, and what kept me working as a dom for all those years and and similarly addiction were there were common denominators in my motives um, between that and this relationship. Do you ever feel tired? Oh my God, yes. I was in this incredibly heightened state all of the time. Like I had so much anxiety. I was, it was such a tremendous amount of stress. I just like picture the cortisol like pulsing through my body all the time. Like I didn't sleep. I was like sweaty all the time. Like uh, I had like shaky hands. I was like sobbing every day. And I was like working a full-time job and like doing, I was like maintaining my life. I was juggling such disparate realities, you know, like I was... You know, my short-term memory started to, like, I couldn't remember anything. I crashed my car into a parked car. Um, Like, I was really out of my mind. Like, kind of like literally, I was like not in my own mind. I was like so obsessed and so distracted and so under so much stress. A good friend of mine the other day came to visit and... It came up and she said, and she teared up like it was so intense. And she said it was like, you were gone, like you were just gone. And and you are and were one of the most grounded, pragmatic, like happy people that I know. And then it was just like, it was like a Stepford Wives situation. It was like your personality just got siphoned out of you and was replaced with this like anxious, totally distracted panicked person who couldn't show up for anything, you know, which is like kind of what I was like when I was an addict. 
But when I ended the relationship, it was like night and day. Like I started sleeping again. I re-engaged all these relationships that I'd become estranged from either because they couldn't handle what was going on or because I just like couldn't maintain anything while I was doing all of that work to try to stay in that relationship. And it was over. And I got to like return to myself, which was such an incredible relief because I wasn't even sure that I had a self to return to, you know? It had been over before and then started up again. Melissa's lover, Amaya, left her and then came back. There was deceit. There was mistrust. But obsession was always stronger. What really ended the relationship was Melissa's realization that there wasn't room for both of them. I needed her to make more space for me, she wrote. I needed real parity, something we'd never had. And it finally really hit her that they never would have it. It was sort of like waking up, you know? And I looked around and I thought like, oh... I have an apartment in New York that I can pay for. I have a job, like, I have a wonderful family. Like, it just, the things that I appreciated but also took for granted before that because everything had been so wiped out and I basically lost access to all of my intimate relationships, to my own creative practice, to everything, that once I reinitiated contact, I was like, holy shit, like... I have this incredibly lucky life. Like, I have this beautiful life that I get to be in now. You know, like, when I think about those two years, I sometimes think about myself, like, I was, like, driving in the car, I was in my apartment, or I was teaching classes, or I was, like, going to social events, but I just, like, wasn't there. It was like my body was there, but I was constantly just obsessed with this other thing. Like, I could not absorb anything else. And so once I was able to show up for it, it was like, I sort of like cried all the time the year after that ended, but a different kind of, because I was like, oh my God, you know, like it's going to make me cry talking about it. Or like, like I, I could, it was like, I could finally face the fear I'd had that I couldn't even look at directly when I was in it, that like it would never end, you know, that like I was gone forever and that that was just going to be like, my life's work was going to be like struggling within that one thing in this tiny little life you know and so when I came out of it I was like trembling with relief that that wasn't true and that I was going to get to have a different kind of life that wasn't defined by this one incredibly painful thing that was controlled by another person When Melissa talked about not being wholly governed by logic, that it's also subterranean wishes, that resonated with me. Logically, I can look at things in my life and say, wonderful, she should feel grateful. I have a salaried job that's creative. I get paid to think and write and collaborate with visual artists on serving up a story, one that people out there will consume in the pages of a magazine. I'm healthy. I have friends, really good ones. I have an apartment, a really nice one. But I'm not able to let that sink in for some reason. I'm not able to let those wonderful things sustain me. And at 34, when it seems to have clicked for other people, I feel lonely in my depression. 
everyone's figured it out but me. I know that's not entirely true, but that's how it feels. I look around, I notice that even those people who aren't that happy with where they've landed in the big scheme of things, maybe being single at a certain age, for example, are able to let the good things in their lives take up more space. Those positives, they wash over them. It's like a survival instinct, and it marks adulthood in a way, taking what you have and appreciating it, knowing that days are numbered and it's better to be this way, grateful, than lamenting what doesn't exist. But I do lament it. I'm bitter that I don't have a partner, and I'm bitter that my family isn't as tight as some of my friends' families, and I don't want to be that way. But despite all the work I've done, therapy, fucking mindfulness workshops, removing alcohol from my life at certain times, I can't find what Melissa found. I wake up feeling like a stranger. I'm in Atlanta, this place I've lived for seven months now. The streets and faces that are familiar to me are back in New York, and there's no one waking up next to me here to make it feel like this is home. It's not heroin or an obsessive love affair that's removing me from myself. It's living and aging and not feeling like I'm advancing or catching on or settling in or gaining knowledge. I do this podcast on top of all my other work, the work that pays my bills. Because hearing that loneliness exists in other people makes me feel less out of it. The people who have shared their stories are people living full lives, lives that include joys and sorrows both, and lives that, even for those who are surrounded by people, are lonely at times. This is important for all of us to hear. This is important for me to hear. And I want to keep hearing about it through the stories we find next season. Pick up a copy of Melissa's latest memoir, Abandon Me, which is on sale now. This is it for season two of The Lonely Hour. Thank you for listening. My team at The Listening Booth and I are going to take a little break, and we're also going to hunt for news stories so we can share them with you soon. You can still email me at lonelyhourpodcast at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at Lonely Podcast, or you can find me on The Lonely Hour's Facebook page. And sign up for our newsletter at thelonelyhour.com, and you'll be the first to know when the new season starts. Until then, enjoy yourself. This episode was produced at The Listening Booth with executive producer Terrence Mickey, producer Chris McLeod, and me, assistant producer Carrie Ann Thomas. The Listening Booth. Certainly make me think twice. There's a story inside. <laughs>